From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Oh, you're not on. Your mic's not what? on. <laughs> okay. It's got turned off and moving it. Let's there you go. Start over. Test, okay. test, okay. test, test. Breaker, breaker, one nine. There we are. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. The solid, cold open. You know, we have a, we have a famous winemaker on. We try to make a good showing and. And, and just you know fall flat on our face. Yeah, right right in the back. first, yeah. the first ten seconds. Good thing this one's just with Adam and not somebody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really, really important. <laughs> it, that doesn't matter. Welcome to the winemakers. I'm John Myers. We've got Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey today, which is amazing in itself. And Adam Lee from Clarice right. Winery, and. Bon Marche and Camby Lee. Camby uh, Lee. Lee. Yeah. And so welcome, man. Thank wow. you. How nice. It's Love these labels. Here. These are really beautiful. It's a pain in the ass, really, to go through and bottle some of these things. I'm but sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it is. So welcome. How do you line up the label uh, with the C and so then the little that's one the on the so one little sticker on top? So yeah. I I went over to the Rhone and really where the idea of Beaumarchais came about was was um, I went and had time with Philippe. We can talk about that later. But one of the reasons to go over was, you know, in Chateauneuf, they all have, and in Lyrac and all right. that, they all have the cartouche on there. And I wanted to see how they lined it up. What did they do as far as bottling line? And I walk into Claude de Mont-Olivet and um, I see four old women and they're sitting there putting labels on by hand. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, crap, yes. I can't believe I got into this. And Would you like to come to California? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. I mean, the amazing thing is, and I tell you would know this, Adam, is I guess as long as you can commit to a certain amount of bottles, having the having the mark is not that much more expensive, correct? It, correct. It really did not cost that much to do it. But during supply chain just recently, the price went up dramatically. <laughs> oh, yeah. Imagine yes. that. And so now Shocking. I'm starting to look at other options. I mean, I love the packaging on it, but I've also discovered that thus far, only two or three bottling lines in the entire state can pull it off. Oh my God. And it's just proven to be a nightmare. How do you line it up? What's successful? So there is a, um, There's a secret. underneath the back label, um, hidden back there, there's a little notch. And that notch will connect on to, you, you kind of have to push in on the label. But that notch will connect on it and. Uh, it's under the label. Yeah, it's under, it's so under the, the label. So the back label hides it. Yeah. yeah. And that connects uh, or, or catches on it. And that ends up um, supposedly working. Setting off the chain of. Rube Goldberg reactions. Yeah. Well, <laughs> make the labels line up with the cartoon. Is it worth? Is it worth it? I mean, in your mind? No, it, no. That's why I'm looking. At, <laughs> uh, no, not at all. That's it's why a I'm great looking, looking bottle. Though, really it. is. I, I thought it was gorgeous. It's named after my grandmother, Clarice. Um, she was born in 1896 in a small town in Texas. I really wanted to pay tribute to her. I thought the whole thing was beautiful, and um, it's proven to be such a pain that I'm going to have to redesign it, I'm afraid. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, not to be totally critical, but this one's off a little bit. <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, that was probably because you were hand bottle or hand labeling them yourselves. And personally, I'd be drinking while I was hand labeling <laughs> yes, them. So right. yeah. and that, and that may be why it's off. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but the but the package is is beautiful, Adam. Um, yeah. Well, and they have now gone up off. to this is the most ridiculous thing per bottle. 
uh, they just, as I said, the cost skyrocketed for the glass, $20.83 a bottle. Your cost is twenty. <laughs> that's bucks what, that's what it would be for bottle? this year if I'd ordered more. I had enough left over, so yeah. I am. Is not, that because you've got a logo? Twenty dollars and eighty three a bottle. Can you can you share what they used to? Cost? Uh, the the most I ever paid before that was like eight ninety two something like that nine bucks. So they yeah. more than doubled. I mean, and that's still like uh, what you're paying a bottle is what I used to pay. A case. A case. A case. Right. Uh, but $20 a bottle, um, this is too much. <laughs> That's too yes. much. Is that because of the logo? It's the logo, the fact that I'm only needing about 600 cases of them total. Uh, I think you have to order a minimum is like 800. So I had enough left over for 2021. I'm bottling those on Monday. And uh, then at that point, I will be out of glass and we'll figure out what I do from out there. Out of glass and out of luck, like the rest of the yes. wine industry. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to jinx bottling ahead of time either because, right. I mean, that, there's so many ways that can go wrong. Don't, right. don't right. break a bottle. Yeah. Right. Keep the bottling <laughs> gods on your side. That's some stress. <laughs> well, Adam, welcome. Um, this, was, this was a long one in the making, long in the making on this one. So yeah, it's good yes. to have you here. Nah, it's great yeah. to be here. Yeah, because the last time I think when we had a date scheduled, uh, Sam or Brian or both of you guys I had had COVID. Had COVID. Yep. That's right. And then and then after that, you went to what looked to be a great trip to France. Did went um, to France and brief stop in Italy for a wedding. Had a wonderful time, but okay. got COVID right before we left, like ten days before we left. So. I was really concerned as to whether or not we were going to be able to make the trip or not before you left on your trip before we left on the trip where all did you go in France uh started in Champagne and then went down to a wedding on the Amalfi Coast which wasn't all bad uh and then into uh Chateauneuf took Clarice members we had 22 of them all together and we went on a five-day tour of of uh, Chateauneuf uh, actually also went up a little bit into the Northern Rhone and into Gigondas as well. And then ended a couple of days in Paris. You had a lot of fun, had a blast, had a wonderful no time. What was your favorite? It's a good question. Um, the 22 members who had a great time. That's and, it. And yes, of course. During memory. The, right the members were, were the favorite. Now you can, now the you can say thing. what your real favorite yeah. is. Uh, tasting in the vineyard at Salon was not all bad in Champagne. Yeah, probably not. Probably yeah, not. that's better than wine club members. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, wine club members. <laughs> As we all back away from right. Sam. Right. Uh, the, I didn't just say that into a microphone, did no. I? The other thing is we had a uh, a dinner out at Guy Savoy and Guy himself came over multiple times to the table and ended up sitting down for like 10 minutes at the end and hanging wow. out. And that was pretty fun. Are they drinking out of champagne flutes in champagne? No. What Most, are they drinking out of? Because I, I want to break every champagne flute in the hotel and start over that i mean some places they offer you a choice so at one of the hotels there a restaurant called um, uh, lake Rier, um they give you a choice but most of them it's more kind of a white wine glass of yeah. sorts yeah yeah not and not the big chardonnay bowls right. unless you request those there are a couple of producers people like jacques salos uh, that maybe make a little more oxidized style that i can see those working well with we need to start that trend here I so mean, it looks like they're trying to break some of those flutes, carrying them to people's uh, seats outside at the at the champagne and oyster party there on Saturday night. 
Yeah, great idea. We decided to go. Let's let's just go with glass. Yeah, this weekend it's right. gonna be fancy. Last night, the reason this was in my mind. Last night we put Althea put on the sweatshirt that she was wearing on Saturday night. It was a great party. If you haven't gone to a Fairmont Friday or Saturday night, go. Um, and she reaches into her pocket and pulls out two pieces of broken glass that oh she had picked God. up. At the, she's like, I was just trying to pick up, you know. Wow. <laughs> and we're like, uh, okay, good job. Not well, slicing she's, your she's, finger. She's helping out. She's just cleaning she's up. Being a good you know? girl. She's part of the team. <laughs> <Yep>. Team player. <laughs> But Brian, your parties are nice. They were great. If you can stay upright, John. Yeah. I try. Once in a while, I fail. <laughs> Buck a shuck oyster, though. That was dangerous. I bought 24 and then came back to my group and nobody else wanted oysters. I was like, oh, well, I guess it's me and Althea. There was, there was a couple that I think went through 50 oysters between the two of them, um, which I, I just can't imagine eating that many no. oysters in one sitting. But. Right. So I invented this game for parties. It's Pinot Pong, like beer pong, but instead it's Pinot Noir. And it was six different Pinots that I'd made different appellations. And on the bottom of the uh, red solo cups, you wrote down what AVA it was. So Russian River, SLH, that kind of thing. Normally, if I like throw into your cup, you have to drink. But in this case, if you could taste it and identify what AVA it was from, then I had to drink. And wow. everybody wanted to play with the winemaker. I mean, it's a fun game. Everybody wanted to play and with the winemaker. Great way to learn. Yes, right. exactly. <laughs> All right, I guess I'm going to Adam Lee parties now. Right. <laughs> so, Adam, when, when we first met, um, it was at Benziger. Um, maybe possibly we met before that because of the wine brats. Sure. Um, but it was we worked together for a little bit. You ran the wine club at Benziger. The wine brats? Um, the wine brats, yeah, that'll be another uh, conversation, John. Um, That's definitely it, an NSFW, right? Yeah, don't let, yeah, it's don't just, let your children or your wives or significant others listen to that show. Yeah, <laughs> particularly your wives and significant others, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but at that point, I think you had just started Siduri. Yeah, we were about two years in at that point in time. Had released maybe one vintage. Uh, made the first wine of Siduri at Lambert Bridge Winery. That was the 94 vintage. Then 95 and 96 and 97 at Delormier. And it became just a little complicated making wine at a place you worked. So Benziger made me a really good offer to come over there. I went there in 95, 96 and wanted uh, really to like have a separation between the wine that I made and the winery that I worked at. Right. And, and I remember at that point, you were one of the first people I'd ever met that you guys were, you were buying acreage and paying per the acre. Yep. And then you were going in yourselves and dropping fruit that you didn't want and aligning things. And at the time, in my brief, you know, knowledge, nobody was doing that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how that was received and sure. those conversations? You know, I... What I knew about winemaking would, I mean, be in one tiny little finger. I didn't know all that much. I'd read. Right. In I didn't books. want to say that. But. No, it's true. I, ne <laughs> I never, I never studied winemaking except I listened to winemakers. I worked in wine retail for a long time, wine wholesale briefly. Uh, I worked in restaurants as well. And one thing that is true is that, well, 
winemakers like to talk big shock on that but We've gotten about 250 episodes out of that concept. yes yes exactly <laughs> but they're in, they're open to sharing information in many cases and so many people told me different ideas different thoughts on pinot noir and then i read a lot of books and uh, one of the things that really came to me was that yields um some limitation of yields were very important with pinot noir so in deciding on making wine, we ended up finding a vineyard up in Anderson Valley that was right across from Handley. We called it the Rose Vineyard. It used to be a winery, Christine Woods, up there. And we went to the guy and said, we want to do the work in the vineyard ourselves. And so we went and purchased one acre's worth of fruit. We went and asked the guy, what do you want per ton? I mean, it's silly now, but it was like 2,500 a ton for Pinot at that point in time. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, how many tons per acre do you get? Four tons per acre on average. We said, here's a check ahead of time for $10,000. We want to be able to do the work out in the vineyard ourselves. What's the most you can pay for grapes No. Ah, the most that I've ever paid was one year down at Clopepe in the Santa Rita Hills that I'm paying $9,000 an acre, and we got 0. 0.67 tons oh. out of that acre. And so it was in the 13000 We led the state in that year in, uh, in Pinot prices. You know, had the California Grape Crush Report comes out. We were the most expensive. Oh, look yeah. at that. That's no us. Winner number one. Yes. <laughs> That's a dubious not one he really wanted to have. Um, I know that you can look at it now and you see some silly Napa and actually not just Cabernet Sauvignon. I think actually the most expensive stuff last year in Napa was Cabernet Franc. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, there's the whole like Beckstoffer pricing model, yeah. which basically is you pay per ton what you're going to charge per bottle and those those numbers are what like really inflate some yep. of those those napa cab and cab franc prices because if you're going to pay if you're going to charge 500 dollars a bottle then and you're buying beckstoffer fruit they adjust their price based on your bottle price and this you're is in reverse fifty thousand dollars a ton mm -hmm. this is ri ridiculous this is in reverse of how it's always been isn't it well it's really good for some growers and I guess for Maybe, some wineries, not, they get to have that consumers fruit. or winemakers, you know, the consumers who are paying yeah. buying those bottles. Um, that's not it's everyday. Not a, it's not wine. a it's not like a conversation. That's they, look they at me. Care. Look at they my care less. Yeah, totally. I know, John, I'm looking at John and he's just got this like look on his face. And <laughs> I understand that look. You're right. But, you know, as long as someone will pay it's just it, silly. I know. That's all. We've we've been through it all before. It's just silly, man. Yeah. So I still buy my fruit by the acre. Yeah. Still um, go in there, work with growers that I feel like are going to do the job that I really want them to do. But I still like the idea of going through and making like some of the passes myself or at least that last pass. So, for example, at the Rosella's Vineyard, um, one of the wines that we've got here that I get from with Clarice, there is one section right on the very north end uh, of the vineyard that's a little bit. It's kind of in a little swale. It's this rolling hills. And you can get sometimes a little extra crowded uh fruit on top of fruit just in that little area it's probably the first 20 25 vines not that much uh and the crew will go through and the crew does an amazing amazing job they work there the whole time and they drop stuff but on those 25 vines i kind of like to go through and just clip off a little more if need be if it seems that way so that you don't have any of that fruit on top of fruit 
Can we, can we jump into what um what those vines are looking like this year? Sure. Because this, uh, you know, and I know that this comes from a, a listener conversation that John had. People, you know, were were things are starting to happen. People are starting to pick grapes. Uh, I feel completely left out in Sonoma Valley, where we've been like in the low eighties for mm-hmm. a month and. There's like zero variation in the Grenache yeah. and, and these tiny little berries. What is um? What's the rest of the state? What's look the like? rest of the state look like? And particularly since you know you're you're the Pinot Noir guy on those places yeah. like those swales, are those vines loaded up again this no. year? Or not not it's not like that. This no, year? it's it's not a real issue this year. Uh, honestly, I think the yields in Santa Lucia are down uh, from normal. I mean, relatively significantly. How much? I'm not exactly sure. But I'm guessing so San Lucia, we had this idea for a long time. Lower is better as far as yield subpoena goes. I think you can go too far in that. There was always this two tons to the acre. Well, that doesn't take into account vine density, doesn't take into account rootstock the year, et cetera, et cetera. San Lucia to me is usually best at about three and a half tons to the acre on the vineyards that I get about 1100 vines to the acre or so. Um, eight by five, uh, you'll get um, that three and a half tons to the acre works well. I'm guessing we're about two and a half this year uh, right now. Santa Rita Hills, very down in Santa Barbara, go further south, very small clusters, um, tiny. Uh, I think there's a lot of two ton to the acre or less um, situations without, down there. Without much thinning. Yes. Right. Now in Russian River, um, I work with a few vineyards still here. And that is so all over the place. If you got frosted, obviously your yields are down. If you got hailed on, saw some of that in places. Some places just had tough sets. But then other places seem to have a pretty decent-sized crop. It's much more um, spread out as far as the the results and what the yields are going to be here in Sonoma. And sort of across the board... um... What is how far out from starting to pick these? Yeah, so I've got an early site, um, Booker Winery that's right on West Side Road. They sell to William Selliam and uh, Mary Edwards and a few other people, and they make I make a small amount of wine for them. Uh, that's an early, early site into next week. I bet you we'll get going for red wine for Pinot. Yeah, uh, I really think San Lucia will be. For me, maybe that week of September 12th, something like that, that I'd start with the Gary's Vineyard and then the Rosella's Vineyard probably the week after that. Last year, it was September 28th. So we're a couple of weeks ahead. Yes. And so those places right now are at full veration. They're at full veration. Yes. Um, I haven't done a sugar down there yet, but 18, 19, something like that. TikTok, here it comes. Yeah. For me, the big thing on an early year like this, particularly when you have small crops, is you really just keep your fingers crossed that it doesn't get too hot right. at the end. If it gets really hot, the sugars will move so fa- uh, so fast, get so far ahead of flavors and other right. development right. that that's the real problem. So, you know, I'm hoping we've got a little bit uh, of a warm up starting. Uh, like mid-August here, we're talking like a week's worth of upper 80s instead. You were talking low 80s. Right. We're a week's worth of upper 80s, maybe even hit a 90 here or there. Uh, it's really going to be dependent on which direction it goes after that. You know it can cool down right after that, right. or you can turn around and have a big spike. And and I think from your perspective on earlier varieties, 
you'd probably love you you like that weather that's coming the question is what's going to happen after that yeah i just don't want it to get too hot probably the most challenging years i've ever dealt with in california were like 2003 2004 where it got very very warm and you saw a huge spike in sugars but not a, a anything else and then unfortunately people never talk about this those were the wines that came out when sideways came out and so people sometimes ask about why pinot got so high in alcohol so big and part of it was that people tasted pinot at that time because of sideways and they said that's really interesting as opposed to it being a real trend um you know that that was what just producers started doing yeah And then I think the problem there is you had a year like 2005, a long cool season and people are like, oh, we got to wait to pick. We got to wait to pick uh, riper and riper and riper. Right. That's not necessarily what's best for the the wine. Right. Right. That's so fascinating. The the ramification, what we all assume are the ramifications of that movie. Right. Really is. That movie, because that movie came out in what, 2000? End of 2004. Long time ago. You were just, yeah, yeah, you were very into 2004. So you had the 2003 vintage, which was the hottest vintage I've ever dealt with. Not just here. I mean, 2003 worldwide. I mean, in Oregon, it was very hot. Um, It was to the, what was it? 30,000 Parisians died or something right. like that right. that year. That was, was that was the the year that we got married and we were in Paris when that was going on sure. and we literally saw like you know most of the Parisians had left and gone on their vacations and they left the elderly at home and there was no air conditioning they were just dying and yeah. um yeah yeah it was crazy. And it was hot. I mean sure. it was really hot. Hotter than it has been this summer in and, and your marriage has been hot ever since, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we know another funny thing from that is we avoid that one. Avoid, yeah. avoid, I, avoid. I, I oh, yeah. And a matter of fact, you know what? Today is my wedding anniversary. Yeah. Happy anniversary, Terry. I know you're not listening to this. Um, <laughs> well, good thing because it comes out four days after your actual right. wedding anniversary. Right. Hopefully, right. hopefully yes. you have more planned than just a shout out on the podcast. <laughs> But another thing that happened when when He's we were avoiding that yeah, one too. Exactly. I noticed. <laughs> what else do I say? I'm going to order flowers as soon as we get off. This no, they're, they're actually ordered. Shout out Ann Appleman Flowers. Thank you, Ann. <laughs> um, anyway, we went to Burgundy that year and we were driving through Pomard. And it was raining so hard that the soil was going across the highway in front of us and and hailing, you know, yep. and it was like, that will be marked. And they never talked about it. They never talked about the hail they got in August. They're such so good. They're kind of like the Napa Valley Vintners. Like it never rains. It's always perfect here. No comment. <laughs> they they are listening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Adam, I think we've started to kind of pour some of the Clarice Pinots here. Could you talk? About the ones we have in front of us. Sure. So I brought um, all three of the 2019s. Um, Clarice was kind of the vision that I wanted to get to after I sold Siduri. So um, the three wines are the San Lucia Highlands, which is a blend of Gary's and Rosella's, less new oak. Then I've got the Rosella's Vineyard and the Gary's. Which order? Should I start with the Start with the SLH and then do Gary's and then Rosella's. Um, So... One of the things that happened uh, to me, at least, was with Siduri, as I went further and further and the winery became more popular and grew, I, I felt like that the wine, I guess the wines were kind of running me more than I was running the wines. Or they were telling me the, the market had a desire for a certain kind of wine. 
uh, I picked relatively ripe. It turned out that there were certainly people that surpassed me in their picking. What was driving all this growth? Uh, you know, movie called Sideways came out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I understand, but I mean, no, no, it's. I mean, it's a great question, and really, to a large extent, one of the problems was never expecting success. I didn't have a plan for how the winery was going to grow. I, I learned a lot. I got fruit from Oregon all the way down to Santa Rita Hills, San Lucia Highlands, Anderson Valley. I mean, there there aren't too many AVAs that I haven't at least played around with. And and at the height of it, you were making how many wines? Uh, thirty some odd wines under Sidori, another twenty wines under Novi. Right. Uh, and the grand total between them all was about thirty five, forty thousand cases. Yeah. That's enough to run your life. It was. Yeah. It was. But I think what happened also is that I was dealing with so many of these vineyards early on. Um, and sometimes when you have young vines, Tom Rocchioli years and years ago told me that when you have very young vines, you take them riper than you normally would. Because what you can't get in complexity, you just make up for in big, effusive fruit flavor. And then that can change as time goes by. Well, the wines took off, and so I never really felt like I could make that change in the style. And I think at places like the Gary's Vineyard, planted in 96, and Rosella's planted in 99, as the vines got older, the roots got deeper, they responded somewhat differently. So what I wanted to do was pick a little bit earlier. I wanted to do a lot more whole cluster. So one of the problems in San Lucia Highlands is if you pick early you have very high levels of acidity uh it turns out that that area it's cool enough particularly the afternoons with the way the wind comes in really shuts the vines down you end up with very high levels of acid can you just real quick i know yeah. lots of our we don't taste wines and talk to winemakers from that part of the world very often will you just explain uh, for somebody who's never heard of St. Lucia Highlands, exactly where that yeah, is. Yeah, and a lot of people haven't because yeah. it's not a big tourist area. When you think of Monterey, you normally think of Carmel, Big Sur, Monterey. A few people, and that's right along the ocean, a few people will think of the Salinas Valley, the valley floor where most of the world's vegetables are grown. There is a strip in the hills between the ocean side, the Carmel, Big Sur side, and the Salinas Valley that's one mile wide and about 17 miles long that runs right along that hillside, has a bit of a slope to it, not good enough to grow vegetables on, um, but uh, so it works really, really well for grapevines. They're somewhat stressed. What happens is the afternoon, uh, when it warms up in the afternoon, the central valley, the next valley over, really warms up. And that acts like a big vacuum cleaner and sucks in cold air and wind off of Monterey Bay. And the, it's the only place I've ever worked as far as winemaking, grape growing goes. That's the hottest part of the day is usually around 1230 maybe one o'clock right. and then it really cools down after that i've had my car door blow shut on me numerous times i mean it's the kind of thing you don't leave both doors open or all the papers and crap you got in the car go flying out it's uh it's really windy in this afternoon times and that really for some reason um, leads to or preserves the acidity in the wine so a lot of people were picking waiting to pick 27 28 because they wanted um, the acidity to go down so you could make sure the wine would go through ML. Well, 
I like stems in Pinot. I, if you can get them ripe, I like whole cluster. So I wanted to do whole cluster with these wines and go in in a fairly big way on stem uh, inclusion. And one of the positives of that is that will cause your pH to go up. It'll cause right. a decrease in the strength of the acidity. Right. So I was able to pick earlier than normal, but by doing a lot of whole cluster on here. I like the flavor of the whole cluster. It comes through. I, I do too. I do think I love the aromatics involved in, in whole cluster as well. I have overstimmed a wine before in my life, yeah. an old one from Kargasaki where it really was a, a problem. One of the things I try doing down here um, is I work on later pruning. I a lot of times work on later um, dropping of crop. If you can leave more fruit on up until maybe do a, a bigger drop at color thinning, it gives you longer hang time. And at least from my experience, I found that you get riper stems the longer the grapes hang on the vine. Right. So if you can let them hang a long time, it has less to do with, with uh, in fact, it has nothing to do. It can be antithetical to bricks ripeness. That's why places on the Sonoma Coast, some cooler places in Burgundy, they get a long hang time. Places like Dujac, that allows them to go through and use a lot of stems. Right. Yeah. Um, we're just trying. We're trying to get some Dujac on the show. It's so it's it's, gonna, it's, gonna, it, it's it's still happening. Okay. She's going to be here during harvest. Diana. And, yeah, she yeah. said she'd come over, and we're. I don't think we're going to talk about wine. I think we're going to talk about all the other stuff that she's into. You know, the save the earth stuff. So Wait, can we do that while drinking? Dujac? Yeah, I'm hoping. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, I I just I just tried the second one, so I think that's the Rosellas. And the aromatics on that wine are outrageous, Adam. So, so these are about 70, 75% stem inclusion. Yeah. Um, so that's an important distinction. Stem inclusion or whole cluster? Whole cluster. So you put them in. I put them in. I put them, not, fill the bottom of the tank uh, up uh, and then crush a bit on top of it. Uh, the highest I've been is, was 2018, which was a longer, cooler growing season down there. And I was in the 80 to 85% range. The lowest was 17 and I was like 50% at that point in time. Still a decent amount. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, other than that, and uh, I mean, with sulfur, I add sulfur to these. But thus far, knock on wood, I haven't added anything to them. Oh, man. That's it. Yeah, the aromatics. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, at first it was like, and I also, I'm going to say cherry cola, but I mean, like, artisan cherry cola. <laughs> Um, and then it just gets more and complex as it sits there. Yeah. So Beautiful. we'll we'll bring this up. We'll talk about one of our, our good friends here, Philippe Camby. Uh, but Philippe was not a big whole cluster fan in yeah. his winemaking. I remember tasting him when we were coming up with this other project, the Beaumarchais, that we'll talk about in, in a little bit. But with uh, Clarisse, I tasted him through all the Clarisse wines I made, the different Pinots, since he and I were going to do a Pinot project together. And he's like, Adam, these are very well-made wines, very well-made wines. I do not like them at all. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, thanks. Really. Right, like, yeah. And it was the one sentence all day that he said in English. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, the one yeah, you yeah, remember. Huh? Yeah, and, and it was perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah right? it was. <laughs> uh, cheers, Philippe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These are great. They're terrible. <laughs> these are great. I don't like them. Um, I, I just well, I want to touch base on one thing here while we're going through all these wines. Adam, you wrote a, a great response to clean wine. Ah. 
Um, and for those, uh, we don't have to really get into it, but for those of you listening that aren't, weren't listening or didn't read it, um, uh, I, it's out there still. Is yeah. it on Venography? It, it, it's yeah. Venography. Yeah. Venography. Um, folks go out and find it and, and read it. And it's, um, I always seem to step in it every now and then, but uh, you know, that one, I, I just think people are being misled by wineries in the in this particular case please how so yeah well okay so they actually go far it's it's called pure um pure the wine company i believe is the name pure wine company they are truly advertising saying there is no sugar left at all in the wine and there are things such as unfermentable sugar so i took their wines um took them to ets labs uh without being opened i got a sign thing from ets said these wines have never been opened and had them tested and they all had i mean some level of residual sugar these wines do your wines do every bottle of wine ever made yes dead but where you're going out and advertising and saying there is no residual sugar in this i mean these were all um no more dry than anything that we're going to try here today stuff like that i think is just irresponsible and is not going to do the consumer any good and it's not going to do other wineries and wine consumption as a whole in america any good yeah it's just um it's just misleading and and you know like we always say you know when is it that you know organic farming will not have to be organic farming it's just it's just farming and it's you know conventional or chemically farmed you know how is it they have to put the green sticker on their avocados right right um so you know it, it, but anyway, it, it was a great article, and I just want people to check yeah, it out. And the fact that you, you know, you taken the, did the extra step, right? As opposed to just calling them out on their bullshit, but actually having lab <laughs> lab right. results that called them out on the bullshit was, I think, what made it um, especially sort of uh, uh, valuable and and poignant. And, 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 and they also. I've always believed this about promoting wine, and it's one of the more difficult things to do. I fall into not doing it well sometimes. But talk about what you do. Don't rag on what everybody else does. does. That's not going to help. I I think the United States, if I remember right, is something like 56th, 58th in per capita wine consumption in the world right now. If we were 26, um, there wouldn't be enough wine made in the world to supply it we'd all be sold out everything would be great we need more people drinking good wine i i could care less if it's your wine or your wine right i mean get somebody in to start drinking wine and that's gonna get them to try a whole world of wine that they never imagined that's a lot of our point with this podcast is like we're happy to share all the consumers and get everybody drinking everybody's wines um sure no and and just try to like you say more people drinking good wine so and we used to do that. We used to work together more. And then when wine became very popular, after things like Sideways and all right. of that went on, when that happened, I think we started saying, okay, I'm going to try to get more shelf space from this person or do more. And that's not the way to build an right. industry. Right. Even if we could jump 10 spots, we went from 58th to 48th. Yeah. It seems incredible that we're that low. Uh, I yeah. mean, it's ridiculous. Well, Vatican City is number one. Last time I saw, oh, so well, okay. we're, we're not going to quite right. catch. It, it is per it is per capita. Though we're yes, talking. it is yeah, per it capita. Is, it is. Right. It is. Um, however, it just seems that's ridiculous by comparison. Um, I wonder what they're drinking in Vatican City. 
Probably a lot of Italian wine, I would assume. Oh, yeah, I, yes, one I, would I, make I, that I, a sacramental wine. For free. For free, yeah. Yeah, yeah their per capita wine consumption is the highest. Their per capita wine spending is the lowest. Yeah. Well, you know, it's and then I, I assume tidings. France and Italy are second and third. No, no, no. On a per capita, they're really not. In fact, France has fallen quite a bit. I think Italy and Spain are up there, but it's some tiny country. I mean, the, the first group, that's why we'd never necessarily make it into the top 10 even in the United States, because our population is big enough that that's just not going to happen. Too many Mormons. So. Many... I'm assuming they're not listening to the show. I can say things like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Adam, could you just real briefly touch on the differences in your mind between Gary's and Rosella's? Sure. Uh, so Gary's, I mean, I can just first off technically tell you the difference. Gary's is one selection of grapes, um, one clone, but it's not really isolated as a clone. It was um, cuttings that were snuck over. Uh, by Gary Pizzoni, uh, two different sections there. I'm doing some, and, and then Rosellas is two different clones. Um, there's two different rootstocks of Gary's. Rosellas is two different clones, one of that Pizzoni selection and one Pomard. Um, what I've tried to do here, and it's something that my grandmother Clarice taught me, I take these two sections, at say at the Gary's Vineyard, one's at the very top, one's at the very bottom, different rootstocks. Traditionally, they've ripened about 10 days to two weeks apart. Instead of picking them when each section is perfectly ripe, I go through and sample them together. So I go through with my Home Depot bucket, sample the two different sections all into one, and pick when the whole is ripe. So it's kind of a purposeful field blend um, going out there in Sonoma Valley. I'm sure you come up with field blends all the time. I mean, they were planted in a purposeful way in many totally cases. Fine. Here I'm going through and saying, hopefully the wine is more interesting by taking um, some stuff that's a bit more ripe, some stuff that's a bit less ripe and putting it together. My grandmother, my grandfather, um, her husband was a dairy farmer and she was never really sure when he was going to come home around sunset, but wasn't exactly sure. She um, told me about cooking in a pot and then later taught me to cook in a crock pot. And she said, if you put the meat, the potatoes, the carrots, the broth, all of the seasoning in and cook it over eight hours, it melts together. Anything you add at the end really stands out. I am taking these and blending them together from the minute they're picked, bringing it in and then going from there. I'm sure I mean, that was a great basically answered the question I was about to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, and I'll you, answer it again. Anyhow, perfect, go ahead. Perfect. Uh, you know, you've worked with particularly Pinot Noir for so long and done single vineyards. You've done, you've done blending. What do you think the difference is really with doing a, a co-fermentation the way you're doing there, as opposed to blending lots later on? Yeah, I think one of the things that I found about blending it later on, I mean, it, it it's an interesting way of doing it and it makes the most sense. Everything is perfectly ripe. I don't know that blending this perfectly ripe thing with that perfectly ripe thing with that perfectly ripe thing makes a better wine than taking things as a whole. I think it makes a riper wine a lot of times right. that that's what we've gone towards. But I don't think that that necessarily makes an overall better blend in doing it. Uh, I don't think I would do it 
with a brand new vineyard. I talked about the Tom Rocchioli quote, you take younger vines riper than you normally would. I think a, a brand new vineyard is going to have too big a jumps and differences in sections. Um, I also wouldn't do it on a vineyard that I didn't have experience with, but I've been working with the Gary's vineyard since the very first crop and the Rosella's vineyard since the very first Pinot crop there. Yeah. And I look at that and say, that's, I have the experience. I can make that work in this particular place. Awesome. It's it's, yeah, they're all delicious. They're all delicious. Make me a believer of Pinot again. And it's nice to have, we don't have Pinot Noir very often. We don't. On the show. We don't. I mean, we recently had Tom Darling and those wines were all, yeah, yeah, you know, you and me, we shouldn't sit (laughs) next to each other. The nose on Um, these are beautiful. Well, thank you. They really. I also hope that they're going to be wines that age. Not that the Saduri wines have not aged, but that wasn't my goal in making them. I think with picking a little bit earlier um, with the stem inclusion, you're getting more tannin. I think in California, we have been scared of tannin in Pinot Noir. We've wanted it to be just big, effusive fruit. Pinot, even when you're not scared of structure, it's often uh, the structure is acidity, not as much tannin. And I think we have such effusive fruit in California, you can take some of the tannins in there. I jokingly tell people, though, that I'm really screwing it up. When I was young, I made pinots to drink young. And now that I've gotten really, really old, I'm making pinots that need to age. And this you'll is never, not- you'll never drink them at their peak. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Louis, Louis Trey distiller. You're, you're, making, right. you're making something that you're never actually going to drink. It's sure. Future generation. I just sold the last bottle of the 09 Gary's Costa Brown last night. And it was drinking great. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we and and the Rosellas too. I think I've had an 09 recently that was delicious. I mean, 09 was a very good vintage down there. I remember that. And certainly KB was was right on top of their game at that point in time too. Yeah. And how, how did you meet Philippe? So perfect I, segue. Yes, thank you. So I I was going to ask a go tough ahead. question first. Go okay. ahead, ask a tough question. You, mm-hmm. You've made wines to age. Yeah. And you put them in a screw cap. I did. Yes. Yes. Explain yourself, sir. Thank you. I did years of trials at Siduri. Um, I, I'm very frustrated at the number of bottles that were ruined because of bad cork. At one point in time, so um, a guy from the Wine Spectator used to be there, Jim Lobby, would always share the statistics with me each year on how many bottles were messed up because of cork. At the worst year, they were a little over 8% of the bottles they opened at the Napa office were ruined because it's one of per case. One per case case which is ridiculous it's down now to around three percent which is far better but it's still you know most people's business wouldn't survive a three percent failure rate unless you're a baseball player maybe at bat or something like that um but the uh i have found i did seven years worth of trials and i thought they age incredibly incredibly well under screw cap using a Serenex liner that allows in a small amount of oxygen now there's other things like diem that i think diem is really interesting as well uh i think there's uh, you, you missed it but it's right before we went on the air so that's why we shouldn't talk about stuff before we go on the air it's all good i've missed a lot of things yes that were on the air, so <laughs> right the- <laughs> um I'm a hundred years from now. You're not going to be doing this. I'm not going to be doing this. And we're not around. I don't know if they're even going to be bottling wine. I don't know what box or closure or any of those things are going to be going on. 
I don't want us to ever become dependent again on one method of closure, one thing that holds the wine. I think cork producers got very lazy. Yeah. Uh, demand grew very quickly. All sorts of factors went in there. Screw caps have led to a lot of, of um, improvements in cork and in people looking at other things. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see that. And hopefully we come up with something someday that's, absolutely yeah. perfect right and, and just to like shatter the stigma of, of a screw cap wine um what's your price point on these 95 dollars. there you go yeah right. <laughs> yeah there you go yeah <laughs> mic dropped <laughs> let's talk about combi now <laughs> yeah well hold on. Okay. just quickly because because i get this question i i don't know the the right way to answer it is people ask me about screw cap and say oh well then the wine's not aging so what is it? The explain. So there's a that... liner. So for a long time, tin was the liner of choice, and tin basically allows in no oxygen whatsoever. They've come up with somewhat oxygen permeable liners. Um, this one, Serenex, that allows in a small amount of oxygen. In the, here you go. Um, it allows a small amount of oxygen in. That oxygen actually replicates the best cork. You can turn around and look at it, and it allows in what pretty much the same amount that a perfect cork would allow in so they've done research on these things and they know exactly how much oxygen is getting in through with with how much you know with, yes they measure everything and and uh, i think if we got rid of tca i would still have some level of concern over different oxygen ingress rates on cork right yeah right, right. It's, it's imperfect yes yeah. i mean it's a natural product it's always going to have the, the you're never going to be able to have the exact same amount of holes in the cork right it's just did you get pushback from your loyal customers when you started to make it was switches? about 90 95 percent positive yes there were some people but you know when i changed bottle shape they were there were some five percent of the people that didn't like that i mean there was going to be percentage of people when you do something different yeah. that aren't going to respond as favorably for it but most of the people were very very positive five percent of the people are going to go how come there's no cartouche on my 2022 that's it, <laughs> right? that's it. yep i had um yeah they're going to tell me the package isn't as pretty etc <laughs> i did have one photo that was sent to me of somebody saying the bottles were screwed up because they were trying to do the uh, corkscrew through the screw cap <laughs> oh my god yes um, oh, yeah that <laughs> I mean, it never works. Keep trying. It never works. Um, Buy more bottles. Try again. Uh There's some restaurants, though. Like, so I remember when Ian, Ian Blessing, friend of the podcast, who at the time was a psalm at French Laundry, and him and I were at um, Hospice Tyrone, and we were opening wines for, I think it was an Australian um, tasting or something. And so he was right next to me. He was opening up. It was like 03 something. um, And it was screw cap. And I was opening up, you know, like 07, 08. Mine were all in cork. So it's three cases of each. And we're sitting there going through and smelling each one. I was pulling bottles that were, weren't necessarily bad, but were offered mm. or, or different, have variations in them. Every single bottle that he screwed, screwed off the screw cap, he was putting back in the case. They were three cases, consistent. Plus he finished like five times faster than you did. Of course. And then, so I said to him, I said, Ian, do you think... Um, would you ever allow a screw cap wine to be on the list at French Laundry? And he said, I don't know. So is, do you think there's restaurants oh, that yeah. wouldn't be? And this is incredibly beautiful wine. Right. I think there are places out there that would push back against it. I, I know of one place um, up in kind of a resort up in Montana that at least years and years ago pushed back quite a bit. 
uh, so yes, I think there are people that are going to push back against it. Yeah. So hopefully they get a little education and and obviously Philippe Combe pushed it back against Philippe, it because Philippe told me yeah so these are under cork yes and so Philippe brought was not and, brought it back. and, and beautiful corks did, did he do so. any wines that had screw cap probably not I, I, that no, he was affiliated went, with in any way not that I know of yeah yeah maybe, maybe I mean let's ask that's a, like an Isabel question I bet you right. there's something in like the Gossier portfolio that, mm-hmm. you know that like, he has some touch on that was under a screw cap just because they make so much of it. But um, I would be surprised at anything that he was, you know, shooting for the upper echelon with that he would, and and he would have allowed that. This is a wonderful wine. I don't like it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And we all know Philippe as as a Rhone guy. Like we think of him as, you know, when we think of Philippe, we think of Grenache. So how does a Pinot guy and the, the God of Grenache, meet uh well i think i first met him uh, truly at hospice around one year but that was just a very brief you know come up and pouring that type of thing i met him uh on a saduri tour that we did uh one of the cruise kind of things and he happened to be at chateau vadu uh, and so at vadu we were uh and he happened to be there and he was wearing the largest bart simpson t-shirt i'd ever seen <laughs> in my life and uh, we we hung out for a little bit then. I sent him some wine as a thank you. So then in 20, let me think the year, 2018, Mike Officer from Carlisle Winery, Mike's one of my, is my best friend. Mike and I decided to go to Chateauneuf yeah. to get away and uh, hang out and taste through. Obviously, 15 was a very good year. 16 was an amazing year. 17 was at least a very good year. Um, so we're over there in 18. We have all sorts of appointments set up, including a lunch with Philippe one day that we had made just through reach out through connections to a guy named Kelly McAuliffe sure. um, as well. Up, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what? Kelly's going to be here in like a couple weeks. Yeah, we were just talking gonna, about that this morning. We're going to get it. I'm yeah. going to just strap him to that because that will take. Right. Strap him to that chair and put a microphone in his face. Yeah. And definitely. then just let it go. Yeah. And then we'll just step back. Right. Yeah. You won't have to talk much at all there. <laughs> right. So, um, we get this text or Kelly gets this text from uh, Philippe saying, I'm so sorry. There's so many different people in town right now, different wine writers. I won't be able to do lunch. Mike and I are crushed. And then he says, but I am free for dinner at my house tomorrow night. Would you like to come over and have dinner? So we end up going over, having an epic dinner at his house throughout drinking fantastic wines Let's say, uh, did he open any good wines oh yeah yeah there was a bottle or two that were open that were pretty fan and the dish was a very simple meat dish and then he started shaving black truffles on top of it and just he shaved it and shaved it and shaved it. i was like oh my gosh uh but at one point during the evening he said adam i've always dreamed of making pinot noir and i loved that way he said that i mean philippe's such a successful like you said the god of grenache and all of that he could have said i i could do this well or i could make money doing this or i could do that. there's so many different ways he could have worded it but instead he said i've always dreamed of making pinot noir so when i got back i sent him an email thanking him for the dinner and then i said philippe you mentioned that would you ever consider doing a project together with me on Pino? And within 20 minutes, he had written back saying, yes, let's get it done. Do you think we can do it for 2018? And I'm like, it's already like July. I don't know that we can. So we did it in 2019 and began the project uh, at that point in time. 
And what, and what were, did he have any specific parameters or he just said, oh, let's, let's get some killer vineyards and no, he, he had definite parameters, definite things he wanted to do. I always tell people, these are Philippe made Pinots that I shepherd uh, along the way. So the way he made these wines was very, very different than anybody I know that's ever made Pinot Noir before. Um, how so? Yeah, a lot of different things. Uh, so first off, I mean, picking very ripe. I've done that before. Very yield specific. Bring in the fruit from these particular vineyards. We have the the Sobranus vineyard in the San Lucia Highlands and the Clopepi vineyard down in the Santa Rita Hills. We bring in the fruit. He adds a particular non-saccharomyosin yeast called Gaia. Gaia is a yeast that prevents spoilage growth in some ways in the wine. So you don't really have to add as much in the way of sulfur using that. Um, he had a proprietary enzyme, one that he used in France uh, that extracts uh, what I call a sucrosity, the French term for a feeling of sweetness without there being residual sugar left in the wine. Vocab word of the day. Sucrosity. Yes. All right. Uh, the uh, do we have a vocab word of the day on this? Oh, uh, that was the first one. Okay, good, <laughs> yeah. good. All right, that's, that's, the, the, that's the best. I word listened I to a couple of the podcasts before, and I was like, uh, no, I didn't remember. That I mean, part. you you have to understand who the brain trust is, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> you just raise the level there here. You go. Depending on the guest, so, so most yeah. of the time, no. Okay, brain might be generous. <laughs> um, so uh, that enzyme, we were forty eight days on the skins on these wines which i i've never done anything like that with pinot before uh so what, what are you thinking when he says that uh, i think it's crazy i think we're gonna end up with va out the wazoo right. i think it's gonna be the horrific um so but, did you push back a little bit no i asked him what to do i mean how do you deal with this so one of the things that we did was we took off the bottom valve pumped it's we call them pump overs but this was pump around back into the must right. to push the skins back up again to almost recreate a cap every other day and so the cap, the cap was falling mm -hmm. so you would turn around and do that that kept it fresh one of the things that we did different in 2020 than in 2019 though was that we said let's go ahead and add malolactic bacteria in 19 we just let it go in 20 as long as we have that heat still going Let's turn around and add that so back in. And that was my idea on that one. ML happened in, in, tank. in tank. Yeah. At, uh, for the 2020s. And and what do you do normally in your Tw 21 days on the skins, more or less? Uh, do you inoculate punch, ML or do you let it go natural? I let it go natural. Yeah. I don't I, I mean, I don't add yeast. I don't add for my own stuff. Right, I right. don't do any of that. Right. Um whole cluster Philippe's are like no i don't really like whole cluster. maybe 10 percent. you know if you want to add a little bit in right that's fine yeah. but it wasn't a big deal right i mean it, it you know obviously uh perception and and my judgment is very um skewed this is so clearly a Philippe combi wine yeah right i mean not the, everything about it the texture the 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 length the finish it's the things that he would look for in whatever variety he was making. It just happens to be Pinot Noir. So with the 2021s, obviously, Philippe passing in, in December was incredibly sad. Um, we brought uh, Isabel when she was over, came in, and helped blend on those. But she reminded me of something that Philippe had taught me also, that in his blending technique, something very different than I've ever looked at Pinot, Philippe was largely 
ignore the nose. Don't worry about the aromatics. Those are fleeting. I mean, you don't want it to be stinky, but those come and go based on time. Blend for texture. Blend for that um, that character. And so you mentioned that those in the mouthfeel are very a Philippe The first wine. thing is, I think, texture. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, were there were there Pinots that he really loved that he said... I. No, this I mean, kind of what I love about Pinot and what I'd like to see. No, honestly, that wasn't the case. I mean, we would taste some Pinots together. We drank some together. But, you know, first off, in Chattanoof, when you talk with a lot of the winemakers there, one of the things um, they will call Grenache, the Pinot Noir of the, the different grape types that are there. So Philippe always looked at that affinity. Philippe was also knowledgeable enough about the history of Chateauneuf. You can read in, I believe it's Remington Norman's book about Chateauneuf that he went through the cellars, particularly uh, in the notebooks, particularly of the co-op there. And it was something like 50% of the Grenache grown in Chateauneuf was sold to domains in Burgundy under the table up into the 70s. And they would go and turn around and add that. Back in the day when we were really kind of in the forefront of California Pinot Noir, the idea of adding Syrah. Oh, these are so dark and big and all of that. And I'm like, no, that doesn't work well. But then adding Grenache, where you've got like um higher bricks higher sugar higher um really higher alcohol is what they were doing they turn around and the, but the flavor profile is not so dissimilar from pinot it made some sense right some i mean syrah would syrah totally swamp pinot yeah as it can i got accused as it of can it. for grenache i got accused of it enough um, that I played with it in the lab. You know, what can I do? And one, two things I discovered. Um, it needs to be boring Syrah. If it's got any of that peppery character, anything like that, to add it to Pinot, it overwhelms it sure. uh, tremendously. Right. And that anything more than like one or two or percent right. overwhelmed it very, right. very quickly. So it re really... I, re I remember we had new cabinets in the winery one time and doing some blending. And I'm like, ah, spilled Syrah on it. It's not like if you spill Pinot uh, on it, I'm not going to clean it up. I'll wait till after all the blending's done. The Syrah, I'm like, oh, crap, I, I can't get this off of the, uh, the cabinet. <laughs> so this is so you have we have 19 and a 20. So the only place 20. that we made any 2020 wine was uh, from down in uh, Santa Barbara County at the Clo Pepe Vineyard. Uh, lost all of the fruit. So I lost all the Clarice uh, 2020 um, San Lucia Highlands Pinots. Lost um, the Sobranus Vineyard in the San Lucia Highlands for Beaumarche. Uh, I mean, it was I was down 80-ish percent. Total. All, all smoke. Yeah, all smoke related. Uh, didn't even pick anything, didn't bring it in. Where was that fire in Monterey area? So the fire actually ran along right in the hills, higher up, up above where the vineyards were, but it filled it with smoke. Uh, one of the things that you really discovered there was, so you, the reason you can't go higher is it's federal land up there, and it's largely federal, just brush land kind of thing. And it created... Um, just an area that was was horrific as far as fires go yeah so it all blm land that just fire. yeah yeah it, friends in like a neighbor it's like he's actually a winemaker down there at uh at han yeah and his family evacuated early on because their neighbor you know they lived in a neighborhood that sort of butted up against that all those public lands and they were like at the beginning of that fire. And I can't remember what that fire is. <laughs> I don't was, remember was, the name either. There's so many different fire names. Yeah, we, it's hard to, hard to, track. to 
Um, but that and that one burned for it was it was burned for a long time. It did mm. two three weeks of you know burning that grease brush that just settled down on those grapes and soaked right in. I'm sure. Yeah. Mm. So Adam, anything exciting you're working on for this year? Or anything coming up? Sure. So. Um, uh, we got a wine. Well, well, first off, we talked about it briefly, or you and I did. Um, I'm engaged now, just recently. Yeah. Thank you. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, her name is Moray, and she is worked in the wine business for almost 11 years now, but she started making her own wine this past year from vineyards in the Russian River. And it, I mean, is she, is she French? No, hmm, she's hundred percent Mexican. Hmm, it's funny, but her mom was watching a soap opera while pregnant and saw the name like Jacques Moret or something like yeah, that pass through the screen. That's hilarious. Uh, M O R E T with the uh, like the apostrophe thing over the, the the accent sign over the E. I just assumed she was. You know, at least of French descent. No, with that name. no, That's awesome. no. Totally, no, totally, she, totally with you. Following along on Instagram, and it's a, it's a, a French girl. She calls she call, <laughs> she calls herself a, a Mexican because she can't speak Spanish and can't stand spicy food. So that's <laughs> so she really is a French girl. Yeah, yeah, she might be exactly. Uh, <laughs> we can't wait to have her on the show. No, I know it'll be great. Uh, so she's got a Russian River Pinot uh, from a vineyard called Lakeview, working with. Jim Pratt kind of out in Green Valley. I'm doing that. That's really exciting. Um, I still consult with Jackson family. We consult with about six other wineries, Napa on over making Pinot uh, for a lot of different people there. Um, I, I'm always looking for new and fun things that I'm involved with. 2021 will be the last Beaumarchais. 2021 will be the last Beaumarchais. I've been talking with Philippe's family, his small family that it is, but really the idea of it better to um, go ahead and end that. Yeah. And then we can, uh, I mean, they're not in the wine business and we can then just bring it to a good conclusion at that right. point in time. Do you think some of the things that you've learned um, you know, or, and you don't have to speak to what they are, but are there are things that you're like, I'm definitely not doing that. And there's things that you're like, of course, I'm going to do that. Yeah, no, I think there's there's quite a few things there. So I, well, I'll tell you about one thing that I can see happening. And then one thing that is a huge missed, at least winemaking opportunity from a, a thing that I will do that particular enzyme that gives you that feeling of sweetness. Um, it's not something I'm really going for in the Clarisse wines, but I do think that for certain wines and people I consult with, particularly if this year does turn hot, if it ends up being a hot year, because a lot of times that will bake out very quickly. Um, some of the malic acid makes for a leaner, not round enough kind of wine. I could see that enzyme in this year being something that would really help build in some mouthfeel in, right. in richness. And just by extracting what's there, it's not adding stuff. It's it's right. extracting things that are, are in the skins already. So I can see that. Um, the other thing, though, that is never going to happen, sadly enough, um, Murray and I were looking with Philippe at Chardonnay here. Philippe said, I've also always wanted to make Chardonnay. And I've never and I have some ideas on how you make Chardonnay that will blow your mind. I'm not quite those words, but that's right. basically what he said in French that I didn't understand and then figured it out. And um, and we never got to figure out what those were. And to me, that's a real loss. The, the real loss is Philippe. 
himself, yeah. the, the the person that he was, how big hearted he was. That's the the true true loss. But um, having that um, that idea. Combi Chardonnay would have been dope. It would have been. Yeah, have I been know. Dope. I'm yeah. like, I have no clue what it would have been, but so heartbreaking. Probably would have been any thoughts on what he would have done? Giant barrels. I really don't know. I, I asked Isabel, and and um, she didn't know. And I mean, to me, that was just the best. internal thoughts by Felipe Campi. Right. I mean, you know, you could probably make some guesses, but that what doesn't really do much good. No, it doesn't. No. It probably would have been really big barrels, though. Oh yeah, mm. that'd be my guess. It'd be really big barrels to start. Really big barrels. Um. So one of the things uh, I do think also is that that enzyme and that use of that also in young vines could be really interesting mm. too, and kind of make the wine at least a bit more plush. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to. I know people have done these experiments, but enzymes. It would be interesting to be able to do some real trials to see, yeah. you know, what the attributes are and. So you know, is there something lost with it, um, but or is it all game? Yeah. You know? I brought this wine. There's there's a last wine here called Enal. Um, it's a trademark that I got that I'm never going to use again. Knock on wood. Hopefully, um, a friend of mine uh, from Meeker Winery, friends um, there, came to me and Lucas and said, um, "I know you lost all your fruit. I have access to a little bit of Grenache and Moved." uh down in paso would you be interested in playing with it and so i made this enal is an archaic word meaning enough uh and the back label pretty much says how we all had enough of 2020 that everything about it was done it's it's a what word that means enough? archaic archaic so it's that's a grammar word number two of the day here. Well, I, just we, like, how, like, well, I where, know that one. Though. Where did you come up? Like, where, how did you find that word? Uh, I found it in a poem. Uh-huh. Uh, I was reading. So during COVID, I had a, I mean, 2020 was weird for me. Not, I lost all my fruit. Didn't really have anything else to do. I wrote six plays during COVID. I uh, about what uh, all sorts all of different, different things. things. Yeah. There's one that's about a champagne maker that the guy I sent the, uh, the play to him and it's a 10 minute it's a short one and he's like oh no you can never publish this you got to change all the names on this he didn't like it at all but um fantastic maker i mean it must be really good yeah it is that's it's one of my best ones actually really hits close to home no i actually went something like 70 some odd days without drinking um, which was well, the reverse of everyone else. Oh, reverse of everyone COVID. else. Thank God, all of you out there who and drank yes, more during COVID. We really appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> and my first day of drinking was a date with my fiance. So you can blame Murray for uh, for me drinking again here. <laughs> for falling off the wagon. Yes, that's it. <laughs> so wait, are there? Do you have any? Is there any plan for any of those plays? Are you interested in anyone else seeing them? Yeah, no, I, I definitely um, one of them uh, that that short one. Uh, I've changed the names, changed the name of the wine and all so of that. So they allow you back the, into the, champagne. Yeah, yeah, next exactly. Um, Ojai Valley Inn and Spa wants to do a winemaker dinner and they'll put it on beforehand. It's a, a basically a three person play, one person with no lines in it whatsoever. So, yeah, I've had them read by a Berkeley theater group. That's cool. Yeah, it's just something you always wanted to do. I did playwriting in college. I took two years. I was a combination odd 
French history major, but then English double major and poli sci minor. I specialize in the comparative history of the French and American prison systems. Wow. Well, what that, if- <laughs> that didn't lead to a job right after college. Break down the Bastille. Uh, yeah. So the Bastille. So uh, honestly, I mean, if you look at this label, Beaumarchais, uh, uh, Pierre Beaumarchais was almost thrown into the Bastille. Pierre Beaumarchais. Uh, was a Frenchman of great renown uh, in the mid to late 1700s, most famous for writing The Marriage of Figaro. He wrote the play, Mm. The Marriage of Figaro. But he also started a a company, complete and total sham company, called Rodrigo Hortelas. And the Rodrigo Hortelas company took, um, funneled a million dollars from the Spanish government and a million dollars from the French government. A million doesn't sound like a lot now, but in the 1700s, a million dollars and funneled it over to the American colonists to help them defeat the British. And so the idea of a Frenchman helping the American and then this Philippe helping me make wine... Now this label on the Beaumarchais. Beaumarchais. So this, 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 that is that is that is Pierre Beaumarchais. Okay. Thank yeah. you. He was a watchmaker as well. There's pictures of that on there. Yeah, he was interesting illustration. Uh, it looks people are asking me all the time, why is there George Washington on your label? And I'm like, totally about to say, yeah. I'm so glad that I didn't. Yeah. I'm like, take a dude, put him in profile and put a powdered wig on their head. And we all kind of look totally. the same. <laughs> so we're, we're, you know, we, yep. They taught us more about George Washington and, and, and public school in America than they did about Pierre Beaumarchais. Yeah. Beaumarchais, unfortunately, probably. And and yeah. And the other Two thing is, dollars. yeah, was, oh, and our, a lot of musket balls. He also, <laughs> did, he also sent arms over. He had a whole Navy and stuff that he developed that sent arms and stuff over to the Americans as well. Um, one of the funny things about it, though, and it ties into wine very well, is um, he almost went bankrupt because it because the United States never paid him back. And nothing. I can, I can see that. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> almost went bankrupt because of the American government. That does right. sound like every wine yeah. brand there ever was. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, wow, Adam, this has been awesome. Um, you know, can you speak a little bit to the time when you were a wine buyer for Neiman Marcus? Like, I mean, Neiman Marcus at the time was, I mean, I don't think they would have ever let me in that store when I was of those. This is what you did with your French history degree. That's it. Yes. Yes. That's how I got into wine because, you know, the criteria for getting into wine is a very low bar (laughs) in so many ways. Thank God. Yeah. Um, sure. I became the wine buyer for Neiman Marcus. Really, I worked on buying for one store in Dallas, and then I coordinated some of the larger, more national deals uh, at times. I mean, did Neiman Marcus have a wine section? They had in a those wine stores? section. Yeah, very much. So the very first day I worked, uh, I'm sitting there on a Sunday. It's a Sunday, first full day that I'm working on the floor in this store. And um, back then, Opus was hard to get a hold of. And we had gotten 10 six packs because that was as much as anybody in the state. It was a big deal. And Neiman's the display and all of that was was we had it out there. And this customer comes up and it's like, oh, I see you got a little Opus one. Um, I'd sold, I don't know, it's like four o'clock, four thirty in the afternoon. I'd sold like eighty dollars worth of wine. I'm like, I'm going to get fired after my first day. It's going to be awful. So this one guy walks up, says, oh, I see you got some uh, Opus one. Uh I'd like to buy some. How much did you get? And I'm like, well, we got 10 six packs. He's like, I'll take them all. 
So the next day, Karen, the president of Neiman's or of that store, the, the manager came down. Oh, my God, Adam, I'm so glad we hired you. It's so fantastic. You really know how to sell wine. All I did was answer the guy's one <laughs> question about what we had in the back room in inventory. And he bought it. Things like that could happen at Neiman's. I had another customer, a guy named Lang Reed. Lang was a huge Bordeaux buyer. But there was 88, 89, and 90 Burgundy coming out, three really exceptional years back to back to back. And Lang came to me and said, Adam, have you tried some of these? I'm like, oh, yeah. And they seem to be pretty fantastic. He's like, I'd like, say, $40,000 worth. Can you pull that together more or less for me? I'm like, uh, yeah, I think hey, I can. can. Talk to my manager. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. So things like that would happen at Neiman's. It was a really fun, interesting place to work, to sell wine. And yes, you could have been led into the store because one of the things that we said was never judge a person on how they look. You know, they might have money anyhow. Right. Right. So even you, right, right. Could, right. Have, exactly. could have made it exactly until you saw the prices on things, and, and then, then, then and sent then, you right out back. The, the well, back no, door. they would have looked at my face and they would have said he can't afford this. <laughs> that was one of the first places, though, that I bought wine when I was old enough to buy wine was at the Macy's Cellar. Sure, Macy's okay, has right. one too. Yeah, and I remember getting Ferrari Corano. Mm -hmm. uh, some kind of blend that they used to make. It looked like Dante's Inferno on there. And I was a, I was a 20 something. And I remember that was a place where I could get that. I couldn't get it at like, uh, what did they have there? Not bottle barn, but it's a uh, big, no, the they have like a couple warehouse kind of places, but you couldn't, they didn't really have good wine, but at Macy's yeah. cellar, they had like good wine. But one of the sad stories, one of the, so later on then with Siduri, I'm like Neiman's perfect customer for us. It's going to work incredibly well. You know, we can do something with them. And I go to them and they said, we've decided not to sell wine because the federal government makes it so difficult with shipping regulations or the individual state government makes it so different, difficult to do that, that it's not worth the time that we have to put into compliance right. for the wine that we want to sell. And you look at it Sounds and right. it, it does, yeah. but it's so sad that there's so many other, you know, if you want to buy so many things online, right. very, very simply right. wine, alcohol was made is one of those things that you just can't do. You know, in France, in Paris, those department stores have the most incredible wine selections. It's absolutely amazing. Just you can spend hours in there. I bought a suitcase in a department store in France and then all the drug sniffing dogs. I think they were smelling some sort of like charcuterie or cheeses or something on the suitcase. And I'm going through and they're like and the dog would react to the suitcase. So I had to open the suitcase up one time and it's like and it was full no, of burgundy. Yeah. Yeah. There's no drugs <laughs> in here. Nothing like that. So, yes, it was full of wine. I did that. <laughs> so so one one last question about so and we were we're going back to the beginning. We never really kind of found out. I I know from from knowing you, you grew up in Texas and wine was not necessarily part of your childhood or in your family. So where was it? What was the, you know, I, I never drank till I got to college. I mean, alcohol at all. Right. It was not a thing for me. I grew up in Austin. Uh, my parents were older um, Southern Baptists. They adopted me. Um, it, my dad's brother was an alcoholic. And so that was definitely something that we just didn't right. really do. When I went away to college, I drank a lot, but it wasn't fine wine, San Antonio, Texas, and a lot more tequila, that kind of thing. But I was dating a girl, uh, that was a junior in college and I was a senior 
and uh, she got a job out in California after graduation. I decided to come and spend the summer out with her. I came out and we would go wine tasting and we thought we knew something about wine because we liked Madavi White Zen better than Sutter Home White Zen kind of time period. Um, but we discovered this one place that we used to love their um, red wine. First red wine I ever fell in love with. Over Gorgeous place, though. I mean, we were in love at the time, so it seemed like the the perfect wine no matter what sure um and beautiful setting and that first red wine that i ever fell in love with was the 84 rocchioli pinot noir uh, first red wine of any sort and yeah. so what started then that love of pinot noir that relationship never really went back and so i got a job in wine retail and then yeah. decided to write some about wine and get involved in in yeah. wine in any way i could yeah but i think you never forget that that love i mean that that kind of that wine is what got me into it and if we ever get too far away to it i mean it's business we're all in the business or whatever but you got to remember how exciting and how fun and how special and that there are still people out there that are going to have that experience and maybe with one of the wines that we're all involved with kind of thing if they, and they have that that to me is a thing that's that's so exciting that we can be that for somebody yeah. you ever go up to rocchioli now I do. Yeah. Mm. It's in a wonderful place, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, the 84 is holding up. So, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I should ask Tom to, you know, find a bottle out of the right, cellar exactly. somehow. So, um, Adam, will you please give out all your contact information? You, can, can you buy these wines? How do we buy yeah, these yes, new, new yes. releases? So, most of Clarice is sold through a very interesting, odd subscription model. Most of the people sign up to buy a, a member for a year. You get a case of wine, but then you get invited to parties all over the place, different and different events and get offers on other people's wines. In fact, we should talk at some point. We should and, talk. Yeah. I we'll like get, parties. Yes. But um, like this coming weekend, we're doing a Clarice member event at Alden Ali, at Meeker. Thanks for the grapes. Um, and at Jay Cage, three different wineries. And they all get to go and they get off of better offers on those wines. They go around place to place. It's not about promoting my wine at that point in time. Yeah. So um, really, it's ClaryseWineCompany.com. You can go there and sign up for either being a Clarice member or you can sign up and um, and all of a sudden the $95 bottle becomes an $80 bottle and that includes taxes and shipping. Uh, 80, I'll pay $80 for a screw cap, not $95. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> that makes a difference. Uh and um, you can sign up there at Clarice Wine Company, and then you'll get information on Beaumarchais and the whole thing. But the real belief behind Cl Clarice is it also is supposed to be inclusive, like what y'all are doing here with the podcast, with all of that, that we're trying to involve other people, um, other wineries, and share just this love and passion about wine. Here, here. And the, the Beaumarchais it. wine, is there any way a restaurant like one I work at would be yeah. able to get some of that? Yes, I can make that happen. I can make that happen. Yeah, um, definitely just drop me a note and I'll be happy to, or talk to me afterwards here. I think we have a little bit of wine open. We might be able to drink a touch. I dig it. Yeah, I got a nice note from Angelo Cosimo. Just the oh yeah, he spent a little time here yesterday. Really? He, well, he brought us a bunch of um, right Malort. Which uh, I thought you would have more of a reaction than that, John. I think you're just. What? It's a. It's a. Um, he said it was a Chicago, a Chicago like a, staple. A Chicago staple. Malort. Because it makes you feel like you're going to get stapled to a wall. Um, but no, I, I actually kind of liked it. It's a, a 
bitter liqueur oh, yeah. that they mm-hmm. that's it's kind of like it kind of like Campari. Oh. I mean, it's it's a little it's not as sweet as Campari. Um, very like botanical herbaceous. Is this something uh, he made? No, this is something that is like I believe there is one dis- one distillery in Chicago that makes Malort Jepson's Jepson's Malort. Hmm. He brought us enough bottles that we can share them with all of our friends for the rest of our lives. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, we got some we got some Malort. I'll send. Anybody who wants a bottle of Malort, <laughs> all seven I of need you. Some Malort in my life. There you yeah, go. Yeah, take, exactly. take a bottle of Malort home. Um, so yeah, that was that was he had a nice we had a nice little visit with his with his podcast partner, right? Who says the show is great, but he doesn't like it. And he has, they have, they have eight episodes in the can, but they haven't released them. So Angelo, when you're listening, Christina, I got your back. Release those shows. We let them out. Let them uh, out. Yeah. Let them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was, What's was, the worst thing can happen? I will make fun of you on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a show? it's a wine show. Yeah, yeah, it's a wine show. They, he, you know, was inspired to do a wine show. He, I think he has either sold his company. Yeah, he, he's, he's out of the trucking business, uh, doing the wine thing. Got full-time. a job working for a winery, and and wow. has the show started the show, but um, felt I think he's he's feeling self conscious about it. So we want to hear it. Believe me. You could probably listen to our first eight shows, right. and whatever oh whatever you did is going to be better right. than those. Yeah. So, and maybe our first seventy eight shows. I'm not. I'm not really sure. Yeah. We figured it out eventually. The um, next one. I want to really give a shout out one. to Rodrigo Soto. He came in yep. for dinner the other night, and hopefully, you can reach out to him, and we'll get him on. Come on, um, Rodrigo, and we can talk about Far Far Mountain. Um, I had the Chardonnay on the list, and then he brought in some Cab. Rodrigo is great. Yeah. And and Rodrigo is I think he's acting as the GM for Quintessa. And um yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he had some of the staff from Quintessa there. Yeah. Um, we were talking about empanadas. Let's have an empanada show. Oh. Have an empanada yeah. Show. You remember when um you guys had a um Ar- Argentinian guy working for um for enterprise, vineyards. for enterprise vineyards the 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 you maybe you don't shouldn't say his name no it's, it's such a great name though go ahead diego smart yes <laughs> so diego smart was working for you guys at the time rodrigo had just started it at benziger and one of the first days of harvest did they have a fist fight over no empanadas? but but it was really interesting it was like it was like oh nice to meet you nice to meet you fuck you no fuck you right. we like sort of thing like argentinian and and rodrigo held complete composure but i could see by the way what he was saying to him it was like rodrigo's always say we have to be very precise in our winemaking and i thought rodrigo's being very precise in his argument with this guy (laughs) we should have a taco show with marae marae this is her birth month and she eats she's hit 48 tacos 48 one year, 47 this year. She's on the pace right now for 83 tacos <laughs> this month. What? I like Marae. That's on the, yeah. She's my favorite. She, fr- she actually French ate tacos. She, she actually ate tacos a year ago, two years She ate tacos every Tuesday, Taco Tuesday, every Tuesday during the year. But they can't be spicy. They can't be spicy. Not <laughs> right. too spicy. Well, mm-hmm. Great segue. September 16th, Grenache Day. Yeah. Uh, we are having Eduardo Balbuena. Uh, our friend from another good name, another good yeah. name, yep. uh, who is a, a among other things taco maker. Um, we're doing tacos Duron yeah. uh, here at the Tasting House for our. It'll be our wine club pickup party. Uh, 
but it'll be open to the public. Friday, September 16th, International Grenache Day. Come on, John. Tacos du Rhone. Just want to get it down. Right. Yeah. Put it in your calendars. I will put it on the Mark calendar. Mark the calendar. Yes. Bring Marae. We can make sure that she keeps her taco quotient high. Right. Um, no, I mean, seriously, she's at 22 right now, something like that. Mm-hmm. All right. For the for month. For the month. For the month. Yeah. It's, that, for the record, today's the ninth. The ninth. Yeah. Okay. So, that's, so that's, one last thing. Favorite taco place going down to San Lucia Highlands. So unfortunately, there was a place in SLH that closed, um, El Rinconcito, I believe it was, in, in the town of Gonzales. Absolutely okay. loved it. Didn't make it through COVID. I brought my cellar master there down there one time. And you know, this is how you can tell that Salinas Valley vegetables are really, really important, was not only to give you chips and salsa with your meal, they gave you a free salad with your meal. So uh, just because everybody- Push that lettuce, So my cellar master, Tim, was like, "Uh, uh, no, I don't need the salad. Thank you very much. And so the the waitress walks away and Gary uh, Frangioni and Mark Pizzoni look at him and they're like, you always take the damn salad. Right. Always. Even if you don't want it, that's what employs all of the right. people around right. here. You take the salad. Take you out back and beat you with a head of yeah. remain. <laughs> so, but it's, it, 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 yeah, it closed down, sadly. So that was my favorite place. I can tell you all the good bathrooms on the way down. I go down there often that's, enough that there's That's the, an important list, man. Oh, it is. That's an important mm-hmm. list. Um, so in Salinas, a place that uh, Chris Cottrell... Uh, turn me on yeah. to um, El Chorito, but they're what they are. They're not tacos. They're small burritos. Okay. Um, but very solid. Very, very good. Um, do they know. aspire to be tacos? Do you think as a small burrito want to be you a know taco? That would be, that, that, a- <laughs> that, that would be a Chris Cottrell okay. question. I was just looking for a place to get some Mexican on the way down to Hospital gotcha. Road. And that you was could ask suggestion. Kevin Burns, who I think ate seven of them between Salinas and Paso Robles, right. how that went. I mean, me. if you... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess theoretically, if you opened up the burrito, then it becomes a taco, maybe. I don't know. So, well, we had the big argument online taco. about fajitas and what makes fajitas not a taco or a taco. <laughs> Is it, it's the assembly. <laughs> I yeah, I don't. I'm still not completely certain. That line could be used for so many different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, aren't fajitas, aren't fajitas kind of like the idea of if you want to sell more wine, you just create a new brand? Right, you it's know? the peppers and the onions that make the fajita. I thought it was the sizzling pan. <laughs> yes, chilies. And I thought it was pronounced fajita. <laughs> okay, if you're still listening to, this, still show, listening to this right, show, you can get an extra 10% off. <laughs> the last bottle of Sonoma Sun in existence. Oh, right. All right, you guys. Um, Adam, thank you very much. It was a pleasure having thank you, you guys. Check out these wines. They're awesome. Yeah. yeah. Have yeah, a great harvest. Sure. Thanks. Appreciate Don't be it. Afraid of the okay, price can point I just cap. promote the dinner? Oh, yeah. Because um, we've this month we're doing the uh, Anmola Rock. We're doing the winemaker dinner um, Blue Farm. Um, but it's it's been sold out for weeks. But I do want to I need a, um, some photos of your dad because I'm putting together the bio. We just got some new photos taken by the. I don't know if he listens, but he should. James Joyner, he's an awesome photographer, um, but he's de- doing he's shooting on film and developing the film with red wine. Oh, uh, I so, need one of those. So we got we got Phil photos from 
dude, that seems like a great idea. You are so spot on in that conversation. You don't even know. Or there was uh, an accident in the in the dark room. Right? You're like, oh, what is this bottle? I'll pour it in here. Um, no, apparently, basically, it's the acid and the tannin. Um, reacts to the film in the same way that like the acids that you would develop the film with but it gives us this very grainy like very retro look um so we're going to use those photos um for our our pr and promotion um this into this into this will sent me shipment um so it'll be perfect and blue farm wines are pretty fantastic i really think as far as Carneros Pinot, it's one of my two favorite producers, without a doubt. Yeah. I, I really think they're amazing. And I'm more excited about the Avarino Pet Nat that was just bottled <laughs> like a month oh, ago. Um, and that's how you know it's a wine <laughs> <Yeah>. show. Right. <laughs> exactly. Some of the best Pinot Noir in Carneros. Yeah, you know what I want is the Albarino <laughs> Pet Nat from Kenwood. Right. <laughs> Transparency. Um, um, but, but the dinner for um, the... Phil Couture Harvest Dinner is the last Wednesday of September. And so I, we've sold some tickets. Right. Um, I know um, Andriana uh, Duckworth, oh, yeah, I think, super is, uh, is on board. It. She's coming in. Um, but if you can just call the hotel, call the Fairmont Hotel yeah. and tell and them it's, to buy And tickets. it's not just 16600 although we're, as the person who sells 16600 I'll make sure that there's mostly. But God, we're, sure we're going to pull. Um, there's going to be some Stone Edge Farm, some. Cayman, right. some whatever, some Dane Sellers, right? Um, right. Anything. It, it's the point being, it's it's Phil, Phil Farm, Phil, Phil Farm, not just wines. not just Phil made, yeah. 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 So it'll be a good time. All right. See you next week. Subscribe, review, tell your friends, only the cool ones.